It's up for debate on KLJXLP Flagstaff, KJAC 107.1. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every single Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bring you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Every single Wednesday, we bring on Sean Clark to talk about the different topics he's published throughout the week, whether it be... Uh, with the Lumberjack, the Rich Report, or his own site, the Candy Clark. Uh, so make sure you guys check him out. But Sean, how are you doing today? Good. It's been, you know, wrapping up the end of the month. Uh, March Madness on the horizon. Champions League in full swing. Just very busy time right now. And I'm very excited to go to a Colorado Avalanche Arizona Coyotes game in two days. going to be very exciting. So a lot going on. Any and any football starts their season, I'll, and I'll work that game. So a lot going on. Yeah, ton going on in the sports world as well. So it should be a pretty good month coming on. I mean, me and you both love March Madness. Uh, I know you've talked a ton about it on the Rich Report, uh, which is Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays from eight to ten. If you guys aren't tuning into that, uh, but let's kind of talk about something we've we've had conversations before about. Uh, you pu- you published an article on uh, the Weekly Take on Jack Central uh, talking about college basketball and your opinion about conference tournaments and, and how much they should matter in regards to the seeding. Uh, so can you kind of explain your point of view from that? Okay, so yeah, I need to explain this because a lot of people think that I, I have an agenda against conference tournaments or some people think that I don't think that conference tournaments matter or yada, yada, yada. All right, here's... I'm going to put what I mean in the simplest of terms. Okay, the simplest of terms. Okay, right now in the Big Sky Conference, which is the conference that NEU plays in, there is a team in the Big Sky Conference that is winless, and that is Idaho. They have not won a single game in the Big Sky or overall. They are 0-19, 0-11 in the conference, something like that. Okay? Yet... They can finish this next... There's, there's one more week left in the regular season. It's this week. They can lose their last two games. Okay, so they're gonna, they'll, they'll go into Big Sky Conference Tournament play 0-21. And yet the possibility exists that that Idaho team can still make the NCAA tournament. And I think that's a problem. Now, I am not... Now, obviously, no, no winless team has ever made it because, you know, that's not the way it is. I understand that. But I'm sorry, when I see bottom three teams winning their conference tournaments, like Holy Cross in 2016, Liberty in 2013, I see that as a problem because it's, it doesn't seem like regular season matters that much because literally you can lose every game in your regular season and then go in the conference tournament and a lot of breaks go your way and you just have a really good couple good games and there you are in a very exclusive NCAA tournament, and I don't like that. So, I, and I understand your point of view on this. You think that you have to earn your way to March Madness. It's not just something that is handed out. But I think going through that conference tournament itself is earning your way to March Madness. I do get that, but the same, but if you, all right, so let's say Idaho wins four games in the Big Side Tournament, okay? What so did it matter if they won zero games or twenty games before that? Did it actually matter? No, it didn't. Because no matter what you do in the regular season, all you have to do is just win a few games in your conference tournament. 
Well, yeah, but the difference is if you play well in the regular season, you get buys in the conference tournament, which better position you to win that conference tournament. It better positions you, yes, but the but the possibility still remains that you can still win three or four games and and make it to March Madness, which there are over 350 college basketball teams in NCAA Division One, and only 68 make. And you're telling me that a, a team that didn't win a single regular season game could get in that? So let's uh, let's dig a little bit deeper, actually, because you're saying that the Idaho's of the world, the NAU's of the world, shouldn't be allowed into the tournament. No, and you're saying that because they're low seeded teams in the conference. It'll be a a blowout anyways. I, I understand that, but. What about the conference tournament in general? Should they be disallowed to being in the conference tournament? Here, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking kind of have like a, a little cutoff. So depend. So let's say there are 10 teams in a conference. Just take out the bottom two. If you take out the bottom two, this is what's going to do. If you have, let's say, all right, so let's use a 10-team conference, okay? And only the top eight can make the conference tournament. And let's say that the bottom three teams all have about the same record. Those three teams are fighting the last couple weeks of the regular season to avoid not playing in the conference tournament. That'd be entertaining, and that would make the last couple weeks of the regular season that much better because you have all these bad teams. They're trying to fight so they can actually have a chance. I just think that'd be much better than just throwing them away in the conference tournament. Well, yes, but if you're thinking that'll be more interesting to watch those teams fight, Idaho wouldn't be able to make the tournament, whether it is these last two games, if they win all of them, or if it's the last five games. I mean, it wouldn't have been a possibility. You wouldn't have got – their season would have officially been over as soon as they couldn't make the conference tournament. Well, yeah, because they went winless. Like, when you're, when you're that bad where you're so far below everyone else in your conference, you don't deserve to have a chance to make March Madness. Okay, then let's talk about a, a conference like the Big Ten. The Big Ten is uh, a little bit bigger. I'm pretty sure 14 teams, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 14. So how many of those teams do you would you say should make the conference tournament? I would say cut out two, like two to four. Two to four, because two on a 10-team conference is already uh, a pretty big cut. That's 20% of the teams. So would you stick the same on a 14-team conference, or would you go up to four? You know what's compromise? Let's go with three. Three. So th- an uneven amount of teams make it into the conference tournament. That'll provide some uh, some difficulties there. But let's say we eliminate three. So that means Penn State, Northwestern, and Nebraska all don't get a chance to not only make March Madness, but to win the conference tournament, which, I mean, every team is invited to every year before, uh, I guess, your idea coming up. So if Northwestern, a team that has already beat a team like Ohio State, goes up against a team like Ohio State early on in the round and they win that game, I mean, why shouldn't they be able to win the conference tournament and and at least win the conference? Because they were bad in the regular season. Yes, and when you're bad in the regular season, you get punished with extra games, a longer stretch to make it to the tournament. You just said an interesting phrase, punish, so they play more games. Wow, I'm bad, but I get to be rewarded with more games? See, you, the, see Well, more games as in longer tournament. You get to play in, to play in, to play into the best teams. You don't automatically go off and face off against Michigan. You have to play a bad team and then play another bad team just to get the opportunity to beat a team like Michigan. You have to beat a ton of teams 
in a row a ton of really good teams to make the tournament or even win the conference in itself. Yes, you do. But at the same time, it because they have that opportunity, what did... The, and yes, maybe it did add a couple games, but at the same time, the fact that you can ignore... you, you It's like in school. I'll use a real-life example here. It's like... You, you don't show up to class, you don't do your homework assignments, you don't do your quizzes, you you have like a 30% in the class, and yet you can you can get an A or B and on on a final and suddenly like you get a high grade in the class with people who have been working so hard and maybe had problems on the final exam. How is that fair? I, I don't get how that's fair. Well, it's not just a final exam. You don't play one game to make it to the tournament. If it was Northwestern, they would have to beat about five different teams, five capable tournament teams. And, I mean, if they're capable enough to beat a team like Ohio State, I just, I'm not sure I understand why they should be specifically discluded from the tournament entirely. So you think that they that all of their regular season issues should just be ignored? I don't think they are ignored. I think when you seed teams and you give extra games in a tournament to teams that are lower seeds, you are not rewarding them for being a bad team. You're telling them you guys have to win more games to get an opportunity to win the conference tournament. Right. But at the same but at the same time, if they have to play more games, okay, then, then yeah, th- I guess that's a decent enough punishment. But why do they? But why should teams with a bad regular season get a chance to compete for the ultimate prize, which is which is a spot in March Madness? What 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 is the value of a regular season if that's the case? Then well, the value of the regular season is for seeding, but the value of the conference tournament is to look at what team is the best team today, not the team that was the best team three months ago or the team that was the best team halfway through the season. What is the best team right now? What team is on the hottest streak? What team could potentially make some noise in March Madness? I mean, that's what the conference tournament does. I mean, we saw Connecticut back in 2011 ended up winning their conference tournament. They weren't a team that was expected to be a super high-seeded team, and they ended up winning that tournament, proving that they were the hottest team and getting rewarded for playing throughout the entire season. I know they weren't a bottom-four team. They still would have had that opportunity. But if a team similar to Connecticut, like I think this Northwestern team could be, I think the Big Ten is more difficult. I think they would have trouble winning that conference. But they should have the chance to at least compete. I mean, if they knock off a team like Ohio State and then lose to Michigan, then Michigan doesn't have to face Ohio State, and Ohio State gets punished for losing to Northwestern. Hmm. Okay. You do have a good point, and I do, I do just want to ask this. So, in your perspective, are conference tournaments more important than the regular season? I think conference tournaments are more important than the regular season in the fact that tournament play is college basketball. I mean, that is what college basketball is, is tournament play. It's getting ready for the big-time dance, the big tournament in March, and this is the prerequisite tournament, the can-you-compete-come-tournament-time tournament. And I think this tells a lot more than a lot of the regular season could. Now, I think the regular season is super important. There's a lot of developments that come. You see teams develop. You see teams grow, different things like that. Uh, and, and you get rewarded for having a good regular season by getting those first or second or first two-round buys. So I think the regular season is important, but college basketball is a game of, uh, about the tournaments. I see your point. 
Okay, well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more college basketball. Michigan and Ohio State faced off this weekend. So we're going to talk about that. Stay tuned. Michigan faced off against Ohio State this weekend. And I think this is a topic that maybe me and you can agree on a little bit more. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. I am joined by Sean Clark of The Candid Clark. If you guys haven't already checked out his website, his Twitter, go check it out at The Candid Clark. And his website will be on his bio, so you guys can find that super easily. So follow him on Twitter, follow him on Instagram, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but we're going to jump right in. We already talked a, a good amount about college basketball, just the, the way the tournament is set up how the conferences are are aligned, that kind of stuff. Uh, so we're going to jump a little bit, take a little bit of a switch, because we saw a big-time matchup uh, this weekend, and I know you're writing a piece about this, so we'll give a little bit of a preview to, to what you're going to be writing. Uh, Michigan took on Ohio State on Sunday. How great of a game was that? Oh, it was amazing. Uh I lo- I couldn't look away from the screen. It was, it was just it, it was one of those college basketball games that you just can't take your eyes off it you just know that you're watching a great game in my opinion this was the best game in college basketball this season and I don't think it's particularly close this is this has been an entertaining college basketball season but this game was it felt like I was watching an elite eight game that, that that's that's what it was it was on CBS you had Kevin Harlan calling in you had the March Madness theme in the background it was it was it was like watching a like watching an elite eight game and a lot of times in college basketball seasons, especially the last few years, when I've started like seriously like watching like every single college basketball game that I possibly can, like obviously I'm watching that the season, but like when I'm starting to get like super serious about it, it's usually Michigan that that helps get me into. That's usually the way it is because Michigan has been the probably the most entertaining team to watch outside of maybe Villanova the last five seasons. And so when I saw that Michigan was playing Ohio State, I thought to myself, wait a minute, hold on a second. How did Ohio State get into the top five? When did this happen? So I was very excited to see Michigan play, and I wanted to see, like, okay, Ohio State's top five. This kind of came a little bit out of nowhere. So I want to see how good they are. Oh, my goodness, this game was amazing. It, both teams scored over 40 points in each half. The final score was 92-87. to 87. Michigan took the victory. Michigan was hot in the first half. They were 9 of 13 from three. And Ohio State with Dwayne Washington and E.J. Liddell both just went off. They, they each scored over 20 points. And you had, you had Ohio State just trying to hang in there. They even had the lead at times in the second half. But they just didn't have enough depth. Yeah, C.J. Walker, he did have a pretty good game. He had over 15 points. Who really just stepped up, in, especially in the second half, with his uh, mid-range jump shots. He hit a lot of those. But Michigan had just had more weapons than Ohio State. Yes, Dwayne Washington and E.J. Liddell were, were better than almost every player on Michigan, arguably better than anyone on Michigan outside of maybe Hunter Dickinson. But the problem is Michigan had has five to seven players that can score really well, and they can step up Hunter Dickinson. You had Mike Smith, who's basically Muhammad Ali Abdur Rahman 2.0, basically. He has the same number, looks similar, and plays exactly the same. So... Michigan just has so many weapons, and what, because Ohio State doesn't have as much event, they're more top-heavy, it was harder for Ohio State to keep up in what was an extremely entertaining game. Yeah, and, and this Ohio State team, like you said, they struggled with their depth. They just didn't get enough return from 
from their guys other than uh, other than Lydell, other than Washington. I mean, they just didn't get that help. And what do you think this ter- this team looks like come tournament time? I mean, are they going to be hurt because they're a little bit more top heavy, or do you think that could play to their their advantages uh, against some of the other teams that aren't quite as deep as Michigan? Well. It, it honestly depends on how Dwayne Washington and E.J. Liddell do it. Because here's the thing. Dwayne Washington had 30 points, and E.J. Liddell had 23. Okay, so that is 53 points right there. If these two go off, and let's say Ohio State, who has been inconsistent on the defensive side of the ball, if Ohio State can have a good defensive performance, then I think Ohio State has a chance to go far. The problem is that if they're not, I don't see them winning shootouts. If there's a team like, let me, I'll just I'll just throw out a random uh, team that Ohio State could possibly play in March Madness. Let me go with Xavier. Let me let me just go with Xavier because that could be like a one versus eight. Now Xavier's not the best team. They they're a bit inconsistent. They have struggled. But here's the thing about Xavier: they're really good inside. And they have a couple guys like Colby Jones, uh, Paul Scruggs, and Nate Johnson that can shoot really well from the perimeter. And if Xavier gets hot and they can out-rebound Ohio State, Ohio State's not that big of a team, by the way. Ishii Liddell's six foot seven. He was playing center a bit during this Michigan game. Ohio, Ohio State's not that big of a team. So you, you get a team like Xavier who has weapons on the outside and has players inside that can score— that that could be a bit that could be a bit risky and it really and if E.J. Liddell and Dwayne Washington both like let's say one of them struggle they could fall in the first weekend of the NCAA tournament so I if I was an Ohio State fan in this tournament I would not be feeling the most confident I disagree just a little bit uh, I think the size that Ohio State has can can be used and utilized I, I think they're doing it wrong though. And and the big thing is EJ Liddell is six foot seven, but he's a big body. And I mean he's just as strong as any other big man that you're gonna put inside the paint. But they've been and and they switched EJ Liddell into the middle a lot, but they had a guy named Kyle Long, Kyle Young, who's a little taller, six foot eight, and he was their main interior defender. And that's where I saw that they really struggled. Whenever Young was matched up with Dickinson inside, it was a big-time struggle because Young just wasn't strong enough. So I think if they can get Lydell in the middle, but the thing about that is if you put Lydell in the middle of the defense, you are sacrificing some of his offense. I mean, that's just a product of putting a great defensive player to keep on defense and focus on defense. You're losing that other part of the game. You're running your engine on that first part. Yeah, that that's the problem though. Like I get Lid- I get Liddell like yeah, he's he's big at six foot seven. But the problem is that l- let's say there's a loose ball, he's not gonna he's not gonna be there immediately in transition. And he also has focus because interior defense takes a lot of effort inside, especially when you're going up against a you know, I I, I just like to use the Xavier comparison. Zach Fremantle is a handle inside. Zach Fremantle has great footwork, he has a very deadly hook shot. So if you put Lydell inside, yes, he can possibly be effective, but Lydell's also your best offensive player. Yes, Dwayne Washington's fantastic, but but the problem with Dwayne, the only problem with Dwayne Washington is that his game is a, a little bit more limited than E.G. Liddell. So 
what do you do? And considering that your that Ohio State's perimeter defense is not the best, Michigan was wide open a bunch in that game. The, Michigan just went cold in the second half, but it seemed like almost every three Michigan take was took was wide open. And because of that, I just don't see how Ohio State can put it all together to have a great tournament run. I love their I love their two star players, and I think CJ Walker should be utilized more. And his I love his mid range jump shot. That that is a very effective weapon. But I I just don't think there's a perfect formula for Ohio State to make a tournament run. I with the lack of size and their and their inability to defend on the perimeter, I. I just don't see Ohio State going that far into the tournament. Maybe Sweet 16, but that's about it. Yeah, and for me, it all comes down to if somebody can step up. Because they have two guys, maybe three guys, who I think are capable of really becoming that third scorer, but the consistency is what really needs to be there. And right now, Justice Suing, C.J. Walker, and uh, Justin Aarons, all those, I think all three of those guys have, have the ability and the skill to step up to that level the consistency needs to be there. So if they can get that that step up from all three of those guys, and it has to be all three of them because nine points, eight points a game for those the third, fourth, and fifth best scorer is not going to cut it. I mean, not if you want to rely on Lydell as a, as a defender, not if you want to have Dwayne Washington uh, running point or C.J. Walker, depending on where you want to do that, but it, it, they would need somebody to step up big time if they wanted to make a deep tournament run. Now let's switch over to the other side of the game because uh, this was a game that Michigan won, and Michigan is a team to really look after on or during March Madness. I mean, this team has played incredible. What have you seen out of this team, this Michigan team, that, that makes you believe that they could have a deep run? Well, Michigan is always, like I've said, Michigan is always a must-watch team come this time in, in recent years. 2013, they made the NC- they made it to the national title game, and they should be handed the trophy because you know Louisville lost it, and I think Michigan should be given that national championship because they deserve it. I mean, I think Michigan was better in that game, anyways. Now, the last few years, obviously, 2018. Uh, actually, let's go to let's go to 2016. Michigan s- scraped the win the tournament. I am mixing up my years. 2017, Michigan, they were a 10 seed. They got to the Sweet 16 and were one three-pointer away from the lead eight. 2018, they were in the national title game. They got lucky with their matchups in 2018. They played 7C Texas A&M, and they played Louis Chicago in the Final Four. They played 9C Portland in the lead eight, but they still made the national title game. In 2019, they made it to the Sweet 16. They lost a very good Texas Tech team. So Michigan, you know they're going to they're gonna ball out of March Madness. You know Michigan is going to deliver come March Madness, and... Michigan is going to do the same this year. Now, I've been saying for the last month or so that Gonzaga and Baylor are by far the two best teams in college basketball. Well, I think Michigan is starting to earn a case that maybe they're up there with them as well. I, uh, Baylor, more, Baylor more so is they're, they're up there with. I think Gonzaga is just by far the best team. And I don't. It, it is possible Gonzaga may not lose a single game this entire season, e- even in the NCAA tournament. But the, here's what I like about Michigan. First of all, Hunter Dickinson is a skilled seven foot two big. He's seven foot two, Cade Reed. Do you know how rare that is in college basketball? Seven foot two. That, 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 that's ridiculous. He's taller than Evan Mobley at USC. And we, we talked about him a couple weeks ago. Like Evan Mobley's a, a large man. 
And Hunter Dickinson's even, in, in some ways, Hunter Dickinson is better than Evan Mobley when it comes to interior footwork. Now, Evan Mobley is much more athletic and a better rim protector, but footwork-wise, Hunter Dickinson has it all. And that's not and that's not on top of Mike Smith and Eli Brooks, Isaiah Livers, who who's a good just all he's kind of like this year's Obi Toppin, but not but not as good, obviously, because Obi Toppin was a very special player. But Levers is kind of like that guy. He's he's basically a power forward that can play on the perimeter and he's good inside. So there's so much that Michigan has that allows them to beat you in so many different ways. Hunter Dickinson dominated Ohio State on the inside. You had Eli Brooks and Mike Smith that can shoot on three. You have Livers who can clean it up inside, outside, in the mid-range. There's so much that Michigan can do to beat you. They can beat you in so many different ways. And the only reason that Michigan didn't win this game by double digits is because Dwayne Washington just exploded in the second half. Dwayne Washington was hitting ridiculous step-back jump three-pointers. I, I kept asking myself, how was he making this? Like, I couldn't believe it. Michigan is just so incredibly loaded wherever you look, and I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at all if Michigan makes it to another national title game. They're, they're just that good. I really would love, like, the, a dream Final Four matchup would be Michigan versus Baylor. Uh, please give that to us because that would be tremendous. Yeah, and it's been pretty top-heavy this year uh, in college basketball. As far as the regular season has gone, uh, I mean, Gonzaga and Baylor have solidified themselves as the number one and number two. And we saw a little bit of a worry from Baylor the other night, uh, but they did end up winning uh, in, in a game that, that they were down and trailing for a while. So Baylor has, has figured it out. And Michigan is figuring it out right now. They're a team that has only won one or only lost one game so far this season. And that was a game against a very good Minnesota team that was kind of a back-to-back. They had a, a Northwestern matchup in between, but uh, they had pretty good, uh, pretty like it was a weird set of games. They won by about 20 points the first time, lost by about 15 points the second time. Uh, so who knows how that matchup's going to be, but. The only reason they've shown that they uh, are going to lose a game or lose come tournament time if, if they go completely cold like they did in that Minnesota game. And and by completely cold, I mean they shot 27% from the three. And against this Minnesota team, they just were not able to defend interior, which which is kind of weird with uh, with the interior defense that they do have. But I, I, I think this Michigan team has really solidified themselves as a contender. Yeah, and I'll say this. Michigan in the second half, they, if I remember correctly, they went on a streak of like one for nine from three, something like that. And Michigan just couldn't hit you on the second half, but yet they still were always in the game. Like they, I don't think they trailed by more than three. The thing about Michigan is that if they're struggling for shooting, they can, they can easily go inside. Mike Smith, well, like I said, he's basically Muhammad Ali Abdurrahman who can just slash his way inside. Hunter Dickinson obviously can dominate... He's basically this season's Udoka Azabuki last season. Too bad we didn't get to see Azabuki in March Madness. But Michigan was able to, to keep up with Ohio State in the second half when Ohio State started getting hot because they had Hunter Dickinson on the inside. So Michigan, even if they do go cold, they do have that insurance. I, I think that was just a really bad night against Minnesota, but, I, but they've been much better since. And remember, Michigan did have a three-week layoff. So last week, the previous week against Wisconsin, Michigan struggled in the first half against the Wisconsin. It's probably around like the six, seven seed area. And in the second half, they absolutely exploded. And I think that's, that's 
halftime against Wisconsin, I think, is a key point for Michigan going forward because they were able to figure things out. And I think they're a way much different team than Minnesota, and I don't see them putting a performance like that. And I will say this. Can we please, can we please have Michigan play Ohio State in the Big Ten tournament? Please. I think everyone would love to see that. I mean, I would love to see another matchup between those two teams. It'll be tough for both of them to get there. there it is just so stacked in the Big Ten. I mean, teams oh. like Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, it's a good conference this year. Yeah, where even Michigan State's not even a top-five team. <laughs> no, Michigan State's like the 10th best team in the conference this year, which is really different from what, what they usually are. And they're a team that is capable of beating teams like Illinois, who's a top-10 team in the country. So it's going to be a very interesting tournament. Michigan actually has a few more tests before tournament time. They have a game against Iowa tomorrow. I think that's going to be a very telling game, not for Michigan, but for Iowa. I think we can already assume and look at this point that Michigan is going to be one of the top teams, uh, whether they win this game against Iowa or not. But I think this is going to be extremely telling for how how big Luke Garza can can be in, in inside against a guy like Hendrickson. Uh, I mean, it's 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 going to be a tough game or Dickerson. I mean, it's going to be a tough game uh, for both of these teams. And I think that matchup is going to be a real test for both of those guys. Another possibility in the Big Ten tournament is you have Kofi uh, Kofi Coburn against Hunter Dickinson in in the Big Ten tournament. So, in my opinion, the two turn there are three conference tournaments right now that I think are I think are a must watch. One is the Big Ten tournament. Two is the Big East tournament. I think Big East tournaments must watch every year. I always think it's the most entertaining. And then going mid major, I think Conference USA is very interesting because you have Western Kentucky who. I think as long as they don't have a bad loss or two to end the regular season, they're going to be an at-large no matter what happens in that tournament. And I think the the mid-major conferences that have that guarantee of an at-large and can someone upset them and, and steal a bid, like what St. Mary's did with Gonzaga in 2018, I believe it was. So that's always very interesting to see. Yeah, we've got a lot of great basketball ahead of us this season. Uh, hopefully we don't see something similar to last season. Uh, Please no. That's going to do it for this uh, talk about college basketball, though. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about the Carson Wentz trade to the Indianapolis Colts. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. And make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m., I'll be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. And we're also joined by Sean Clark, the Candid Clark. So make sure to check him out on Twitter if you guys haven't already, at the Candid Clark. He's got his website linked there. All of his articles are posted on his story, so make sure, or on his timeline. So make sure you guys check him out there. Uh, we've had a great first two segments. We talked a lot about college basketball, Ohio State, Michigan. Uh, now I want to transfer to a little bit talking about the NFL. So the Carson Wentz trade happened uh, about a week ago, and we haven't had you on the show since it happened, but this was a prediction you made a pretty long while ago, and I kind of want to talk to you about how you came to that determination. Why did you think that this was the correct fit for Carson Wentz? All right, so I, lo- I, so I wrote that article after the Colts' loss of the Steelers week 16, and Kate, that must have been a really tough loss because the— but for the for for a Colts fan because the Colts were up twenty four to seven and then they gave up three touchdowns in the second half against Pittsburgh and lost and I remember watching that game and I thought to myself 
man, if only the Colts had a quarterback that wasn't a statue in the pocket. Because the Steelers took the lead early in the fourth quarter. So the Colts had multiple chances to, to take the lead back. And I thought they would. I was convinced watching that game, well, along with a bunch of others on NFL Red Zone, because the Browns were also playing the Jets at the same time. I was thinking to myself, okay, Colts are going to take the touch, score a touchdown, and take the lead, right? No, they didn't. And Phillip Rivers was just constantly over- overthrowing receivers. There were dropped passes everywhere, and Phillip Rivers looked very uncomfortable in the pocket, and it, and he just he he turned into Sam Darnold. He was seeing ghosts everywhere, and I thought to myself, okay. Philip Rivers only signed a one-year contract. He, there's no way he's returning next season. And guess what? I was right. He, he retired. He, he literally retired. So I thought to myself, okay, the Colts are going to desperately need a quarterback. And they don't have a – because they're a good team, they finished 11-5, and five, they made it to the playoffs, they weren't going to have a top-10 draft pick. So that route wasn't very likely because there's quite a few teams above them that need a quarterback even worse than they do. So I thought to myself, okay, who is on the market? Matthew Stafford? Well, he wanted to go to the Rams. That's fine. But I thought to myself, wait a minute. So let me get this straight. The Colts head coach is Frank Reich. Hmm. Now, where was Frank Reich before he went to Indianapolis? Oh, wait wait a second. Philly? Oh, wait. Um, Last year, uh, Frank Reich in Philly, who was the quarterback? Oh, it was Carson Wentz. And, oh, wait a minute. Carson Wentz was also the MVP frontrunner before he got injured. So I thought to myself, if there's any person that can fix Carson Wentz, it's Frank Reich. If there's anyone in the NFL that can fix him, because Carson Wentz was at his best with Frank Reich. He was at his best. And I thought to myself, okay, the Colts have a good offensive line. They have, they have Ryan Kelly, one of the best centers in the NFL. They have Quentin Nelson. I know Anthony Costanza retired, but they did have him when I wrote that article. So I thought to myself, okay, great offensive line. The Vilpers with the second least sacked QB in the NFL last year as a, as a team. And it, it just fit. And also like, oh, wait, can the Colts afford this? Oh, yes, they could afford it. So I'm like, okay, all the pieces just work. And, and I knew because Carson Wentz was really bad last season to be blunt. Well, not all his fault, obviously. Colts can make this work easily, they, and they don't have to give up a King's Ransom, and guess what? They didn't. No, and I, and I want to talk about something you said. Can the Colts fix Carson Wentz? Now, this is something that I've been talking about on the show a lot, kind of pondering. Is Carson Wentz even broken at this point? I mean, Carson Wentz has had one bad season. I mean, 2019, he still had a 30 to about 7 touchdown to interception ratio. Not too bad. That's in 2019. 2020, obviously, everything went off the rails for Carson Wentz. But the big problem, I don't know if it was Carson Wentz or the situation he was in. Doug Peterson and Carson Wentz, there was a report that was uh, that came out that they didn't speak for weeks. And when I say they didn't speak, I mean they didn't talk to each other. And during this time, there was a small period of time in the, in when they weren't talking to each other that Carson Wentz was still the starting quarterback for the Eagles. So, I mean... Clearly, if the head coach isn't talking to the quarterback, that's a recipe for disaster in itself. And his confidence was probably pretty shot after being benched and and replaced by Jalen Hurts, a second-round draft pick. But it all started kind of to deteriorate once those injuries happened and there was no solution. 
I mean, there was no offensive line. Four of the five starters got hurt for the entire season. There were no wide receivers to speak of. Travis Fulgham, before this season with the Eagles, had no catches for no yards in his entire NFL career. He played two games with the Lions, I believe. And Greg Ward, who was the number two receiver on this team, uh, not including the tight end Dallas Goddard, who's, I think, a pretty good tight end. Zach Ertz was hurt. Uh, but Greg Ward is a former quarterback. I mean, he was a he was a college quarterback. He didn't play much wide receiver until now in the NFL. So I think Carson Wentz wasn't really broken. My thoughts on him is his situation put him in a spot where he was trying to play hero ball, where he was trying to be the guy to save everything, be the guy to win the game and put that team in the playoffs. I mean, that's what he did in 2019. He was successful with his hero ball. He got to the playoffs. Obviously, nothing came out of it. But they made it there, and that's really what mattered. But last year, I mean, there was even less. And there was just, I think, no opportunity for Carson Wentz to truly show his ability. I completely agree. Like I, like I said during my spiel, it wasn't all Carson Wentz's fault. And now, he, now some of the blame does have to fall on him at the same time. He was still 34th in completion percentage. That's terrible. 34th. That means that... 31 other teams had a, had a quarterback that had a better completion percentage on top of a backup or two. That's that's not good. Also, Carson Wentz was tied tied for the legally most interceptions, and Carson Wentz played fewer games than Drew Locke did. So, Carson Wentz does deserve some of the blame. He, he tried to force things too much, and he wasn't very patient, even though there were times where he threw bad interceptions, even though he had all the time, and he was misreading plays. If you go look at some of his game film, he was completely misreading plays. However, that's only about 33% of it. I think you can split basically 33.3% of the blame. 33% of it goes on Carson Wentz. Like, he, he, wasn't, he wasn't very good last season. Like, you got to take responsibility. He wasn't very good last season. However, that's only 33.3% of it. 33.3% is uh, Doug Peterson not having good communication with his quarterback, not boosting his confidence, not giving him place to work with, and not allowing him to get help. Give him screens, draws, uh, checkdowns. Like, give boost his confidence with easy throws he can make. Run the ball. Come on. The play calling was atrocious. Do I have to go over the Eagles' two-point conversions? Some of the worst plays I've ever seen in my entire life were some of the Eagles' two-point conversions last season. And that's not hyperbole. It's not. Go look at some of their two-point conversion attempts. It was disgusting. Also, the situations that prompted them to do that didn't make any sense either. And then the other 33%, the Eagles' offensive line was in shambles. It was in absolute shambles. I can't... They had Brandon Brooks... And I cannot pronounce the other guy's name to save my life. So, Valapaitai or something like that. I, I apologize for butchering the name, but you're telling. So, so there. Those are those are like two very important tackles. And then Jason Peters is injured. J Jason Kelsey was still there. You had Lane Johnson who was injured too. Their offensive line was just in shambles, and Carson Wentz didn't have time. Like, yes, yeah, sometimes when he did have time, he was terrible, which that's on him. But come on, you got to give your quarterback time to throw the ball. Now, Doug Peterson should have adjusted and actually give him some quick passes to work with. But when you don't have an offensive line that gives you time to protect and you don't have wide receivers outside of Travis Fulgham that can do anything, what is he supposed to do exactly? I mean, Jalen Hurts made some good plays, 
But that's because Jalen Hurts, the guy is super athletic, and he can just chuck the ball 50 yards from his own 20, 20 yards in the backfield. J- Jalen Hurts does have that talent. Carson Wentz is not that he's more of a on-the-run kind of quarterback, but he's very good in the pocket. That's why I think Jalen Hurts is better for this team going forward because the Eagles are going to be a mess for the next couple seasons. So have a quarterback that can thrive in chaos because Jalen Hurts can thrive in chaos. Carson Wentz is not that kind of quarterback. Yes, Carson Wentz is mobile, but he's a quarterback that thrives when things are going well and can elevate your offense. So now with the Indianapolis Colts, Carson Wentz does have that protection. He does have a really good running game, a good offensive line, some decent wide receivers. I mean, Colts need to work on that this offseason. But this is a thousand times better situation, and I'm so thankful that Carson Wentz joins the Colts and not the Bears. The Bears wouldn't have been that much better, I don't think. So, and when I when you refer to Carson Wentz, you're looking a lot at his last season with the Eagles, and I think that's really a good way to look at it. I mean, he, the most recent season is going to be the most telling, but I think he was in a very similar situation in 2019 as well. He had a similar offensive line that was very hurt, he had no wide receivers. I mean, Alshon Jeffrey was his number one receiver. He played half the games. Nelson Aguilar was his other number one receiver during that time. We've seen Aguilar's got some talent, but again, just not good enough. But even with that same bad environment, Carson Wentz still threw for 64% completion percentage. Like I said, 27 touchdowns, 7 interceptions. I think his fall apart last season, and I, I do agree, there were some reads that he that he misread and there were some plays that he didn't play well but I I put a lot of that and 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 when I look at this season I kind of want to just throw it away because I put a lot of that on who does he trust if you're Carson Wentz and you are playing for the Philadelphia Eagles last season look around you on the field and tell me one name that you really trust Dallas Goddard that's it and that's the only one and and that's the thing if you don't trust a single player on your team you don't trust the coaching staff you don't trust your general manager to be able to put players around you things are going to fall apart things are not going to work and if Deshaun Watson plays next season and I think Deshaun Watson was in a similar situation his weapons were far and away much better Brandon Cooks Will Fuller far and away better than what Wentz had but if if Deshaun Watson goes through another situation in Houston where things are similar I, I would expect a similar downward spiral for Deshaun Watson. Not saying Deshaun Watson's not one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but I think the situation has a big deal into how the player can really develop. And, and I mean, for Carson Wentz, I think it really made an impact. Yeah, and the two things I'll say that, first of all, like, I'm fine with throwing away last season for Carson Wentz. Uh, this is basically what this trade the Indianapolis Colts is basically wiping the slate clean. And I you know, I think that Carson Wentz should be evaluated for what he does. Next season's going to be really telling of who Carson Wentz is. If Carson Wentz has similar struggles with the Colts that he did with the Eagles, that's not good. That That's not going to look good for Carson Wentz at all. It's going to prove that maybe, maybe either that Philly broke him or that he was on a downward spiral. And what I'll say about that is the Colts really prepared for that exact situation. Uh, the setup of the trade is they're sending a third-round pick this year for a starting quarterback. That's fine. And potentially a first-round pick if he plays 70% of the snaps. But if he can't prove that he's the same quarterback he was, don't play him 70% of the snaps. And that's a second-round pick. You get another chance to restart. You have capital. You have cap space. I mean, it's it's for this trade, I think it's a good one for the Colts because they made it 
a a safe trade if Carson Wentz is still the same guy that some people think he is. Absolutely. I and I think I think he will prove himself, but obviously Tom will tell. And Chris Boward obviously knew he was going to trade. He's one of the best GMs in the NFL. The Colts are very lucky to have him as their general manager, and he made a smart move. But I also I also kind of just thought about this as we were talking about it. And we've talked about Tom Brady before, but think about this. 2019, Tom Brady, that's a season you can just throw away with Tom Brady because in 2019, and and I had to suffer through this as a Patriots fan, it, even though the Patriots won the division, won about, won about 10, 12, 11 games, as a Patriots fan, this season was awful because, number one, Tom Brady threw to no one. Nikhil Harry was a bust. They had no tight ends. Uh, Sony Michelle wasn't the running back that he was in 2018. Gronk retired. Uh, the offensive line was not as good as it was the previous season. Wait a minute. Tom Brady still made the playoffs and almost and was one win away from a, a 4-11 Dolphins team, one win over them, to a first-round bye. The, 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 that's... It, <laughs> We talked about how bad Carson Wentz's situation is. Tom Brady's situation in 2019, and also there was a lot of reports that Brady was falling out with Belichick around that time too. Brady's situation in 2019 with the Patriots wasn't much better than what Carson Wentz had last season. And Tom Brady still won over 10 games and won the division. And then Tom Brady went to Tampa Bay and cruised to a Super Bowl championship. Not saying Carson Wentz is going to do the same thing in Indianapolis. But I think Carson Wentz gonna have a really good season next season. So it's a, it's it's a comparison that I kind of just thought of. Like, yeah, Tom Brady twenty nineteen situation with the Patriots wasn't that much better than Carson Wentz with the Eagles in twenty twenty. I've got one final question before uh, before we go to break. Uh, do you think the Eagles got enough value out of Carson Wentz? I know that the Bears reportedly weren't even involved in making an offer. So do you think that this was the best they could have gotten, or do you think they should have tried to hold out and wait for more? Here's the, maybe the Bears would have offered more, but at the end of the day, the Eagles still got a third-round pick and a guaranteed second, maybe first, for a quarterback that clearly didn't have any future going forward. Now, the Eagles do have an NFL record in dead cap, but at the same time, you're still saving money long-term, even though you are taking the full brunt of a salary this season, over $30 million. So you still got two pretty good draft picks, for a quarterback that wasn't even going to be on your roster next season. It's, it's the Jalen Hurts show now in Philadelphia. Jalen Hurts is now your guy going forward. Now, look, I did read the same thing, too, where the Eagles are like, oh, we're going to bring some competition. Stop. Stop. If you don't play Jalen Hurts week one next season, something is seriously wrong with your organization. I mean, there is. So I think the Eagles got still got a really good value for Carson Wentz. Hopefully the Eagles can use these draft picks to – Stop drafting bust-wide receivers. Because remember, they could have had Justin Jefferson and DK Metcalf on the same roster, but instead you drafted J.J. Arcega-Whiteside and Jalen Rager. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even say that with a straight face. Okay, so the Eagles need to stop just busting on their draft picks and use them to build up a young roster. Because do the Eagles really have young, promising players on their roster besides maybe Miles Sanders and Jalen Hurts? And Dallas Goddard, <laughs> but Dallas Goddard's been around a few years. Yeah, no, I, 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 I'm a hundred percent in agreement. Yeah, with you. and here's the thing, please, I'm, I would go up to Howie Roseman right now. Please trade Brandon Graham. Please get, get Brandon Graham, still an elite pass rusher, 
away from this team, get a first round pick for Brandon Graham. I, I could I can tell you three teams or more that could give up a first round pick for Brandon Graham. I can tell you one of them. I would as a Patriots fan, I would give up my first round pick for Brandon Graham. He would be a huge difference maker on a Patriots team that had no pass rush last season. Please. Eagles need to sell off their older players and stop messing up your draft picks. Come on, it's not that hard. I will say it would be completely on brand for the Eagles to go out and see that number six draft pick, pretty prime position, and see Justin Fields maybe drop to that spot. If he drops to that spot, do you think they pass on him? They got Jalen Hurts. I don't think they would. I I mean, they, here's the thing. I could see the Eagles doing that, and I would lose my mind because that would be all-time stupid, and then you need to make sure you trade Jalen Hurts. Well, competition. You want the competition. But, I agree with you. I think if you go with another quarterback, you bring another quarterback controversy to Philadelphia, you just build yourself another problem. Whether that is with Jalen Hurts or with the future quarterback that you just drafted, there's going to be an issue. You can't you, you can't continue to, to create quarterback battles when you're in a league that strives on the guy who is a sec- in a secure position, who is in a good position, is going to be the happiest and the most successful. And I'll just end with this. Who would want to play for Philadelphia if they they draft another quarterback? Why why would any quarterback want to go to Philly? I'll leave it at that. Yeah, no, I definitely would not want to play for Philly. Whether I'm a quarterback, wide receiver, defensive back, whatever it be, I think they're going to be one of the worst teams in football next year. And it won't be Jalen Hurts' fault. I'll say that much. It won't be Jalen Hurts' fault. Uh, But we're going to take a quick break. Thank you very much for coming on, Sean. Thank you for joining the show. We talked a lot about college basketball, the Indianapolis Colts, and the Eagles' new trade. Uh, Make sure you guys check out Sean at the Candy Clark on social medias. He's got a great website, thecandyclark.com, which has tons of great content, uh, all of which we talked about today. So if you want to listen or think a little bit deeper into what Sean is thinking, he's got a ton of information in those articles, and they're really good reads, so check those out. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about Penny Sewell and why he could be a game-changing offensive lineman. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live, bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. We have already talked a lot about college basketball. If you guys thought that was it, I'm going to be talking a lot more college basketball, even when Sean isn't on the show. I know it's been mostly a thing that, that we do when Sean comes on on Wednesdays, but now that March Madness is right around the corner, I'm going to start talking a little bit more March Madness. Uh, you guys can look forward to a topic, a conversation about Iowa on Monday. So stay tuned for that. We also talked about Carson Wentz trade. You guys have already heard me and what I think about the Carson Wentz trade. I think it's great for the Colts, but I always want to get another point of view. And Sean brings a great point of view. He said it was a good trade for the Colts. Uh, so I'm in agreement with him. I want to stick with football, though. Penny Sewell is the best offensive lineman in this draft. That's pretty much the consensus right now. Now, it is pretty tough to evaluate a guy like Penny Sewell because he did opt out of last season. So he is a season removed from playing college ball. 
But his season in 2019, when he did play before the coronavirus pandemic, he looked absolutely game-changing. I mean, he is just a mauler at that left tackle position, and he's also got just such a great and strong stance. I know it's kind of hard to talk about how good an offensive lineman is, but when you see an offensive lineman who has the ability to move somebody like Penny Sewell does, and he has the ability to be so quick on his feet, which is really a tough trait for somebody at his size, it is just that much more impressive. Now, there's going to be a lot of teams eyeing Penny Sewell, and I don't expect him to get out of the top five to seven picks. Now, depending on what happens with quarterbacks, depending on if there are trades, which I think there will be, I think there's going to be a lot of different movements. Uh, the draft is going to be really important this year. Teams cannot really afford to pay uh, a lot of their players as much as they would like to. So free agency, uh, the NFL draft, it's all going to be super important this year. And I'm going to talk about the salary cap situation and what's going on with the salary cap on Friday. So if you guys have any interest of learning about the salary cap and and how teams can maneuver the salary cap, uh, tune in on Wednesday. But right now, Penny Sewell, number one offensive tackle. The first and immediate landing spot that makes the most sense for Penny Sewell is if you send him to Miami. Now, Miami has the third overall draft pick, and they very well could use it right there and pick Penny Sewell, a guy who is going to be a plug-and-play lineman, and he's going to be a starter right away a starter at a premier spot for offensive linemen. But it does provide some issues for Miami. They did just draft a couple of offensive linemen. They have a pretty young and growing offensive line. So their offensive line isn't the biggest concern right now. Now, this pick is really a pick of, well, do we want the talent and the upside of Penny Sewell, or do we want a position that we need, somebody who's going to fit our lineup the best? And if they want to do that, if they want to find somebody who's going to fit their lineup the best, trading back has to be the best case scenario. I mean, the Dolphins already have the number 18 overall draft pick. Uh, that is their own draft pick. And they got this pick from the Houston Texans. So they have a ton of draft capital already. But in a year where the salary cap is going to be so important, getting the most out, out of the draft picks, getting the most out of these assets is just going to be of the utmost importance. So I don't think Penny Sewell is the best pick for the Dolphins at number three. I think the Dolphins have a good opportunity to move back to the number six spot, maybe the number eight or nine spot, depending on what those teams want to do. The Carolina Panthers, the Denver Broncos, the Philadelphia Eagles, maybe the Atlanta Falcons want to move up one spot and take a quarterback. I mean, there's a ton of things that could happen, and that number three pick is the one that I think is going to have the most movement come draft time. So... For the Dolphins, trading that draft pick, best case scenario. But there's a team at number five that could also really benefit from trading back. The Cincinnati Bengals, who are picking at number five, they need a ton of help. Offensively, defensively, they need a ton of help. They're a bottom-feeding team, one of the worst teams in the NFL the last couple of years. So they need some immediate help. And getting the most draft picks in the first round would sound like the right idea. But for a team like uh, the Cincinnati Bengals, protecting Joe Burrow has to be more important than winning. And that's a in, an interesting way to put it. For the Bengals, they can't put a focus on winning football. Not right now. They're just not ready. They're not in that situation. They're not a good enough team to win the Super Bowl. And that's really the big deal. So for them, they need to focus right now before they focus on surrounding 
uh, Joe Burrow with the talent that is going to put this team over the top. Right now, they need to focus on building to protect him, making sure that what happened last year, the torn ACL, the torn MCL, the shredded knee that he had to go through, they need to make sure that that never happens again. I mean, we've seen quarterbacks' careers ended because of shoddy offensive linemen. Andrew Luck had to retire because he was in so much pain playing football, it just wasn't worth it for him. David Carr, Derek Carr's brother, had a career in Houston that never really reached where it could have because Houston was never willing or able to commit the resources to protecting him. Now, if the Cincinnati Bengals want to go down that same path, they can build on the path of winning, build on the path of winning the uh, the AFC North. That could be their very... Uh, the path that they choose to go down. But if they choose that path, if they go down that path, they have to consider if Joe Burrow gets hurt, if Joe Burrow is unable to play, it might be the last time he plays for the Bengals. I mean, if you tear your ACL once, your first season with the Bengals, and you have another four seasons with the Bengals, do you really want to play for that team if you're just going to continue and continue and continue to get hurt? I mean, Joe Burrow clearly has talent. He looked like a stud last year in the limited time that he got. So for this Bengals team, they need to put more of a priority on Joe Burrow than the success of this team. Because the success of this team all comes when Joe Burrow is ready for it to come. And right now, Joe Burrow is going to be recovering from an injury that took him out for the entire season. An injury that has ended careers and an injury that is tough to recover from. But Joe Burrow is going to recover. He's going to be back next season, and the Bengals have to make sure this never happens again. So drafting Penny Sewell has to be their number one priority in this draft. If they can bring in a left tackle, what happened with Joe Burrow when he tore his ACL, it doesn't happen the same way. You don't put a blindside blocker out there with the skill of Penny Sewell anticipating that an ACL injury or a blindside hit is going to happen. Penny Sewell is a plug-and-play lineman who you put in there if you really need to protect your quarterback. And that's what the Bengals need. They really need to protect their quarterback. Now, if they wanted to, they could also go wide receiver at this spot. Who knows if Penny Sewell is going to drop to them? I mean, he could go number three. He could go number four. Penny Sewell has that kind of talent. So if they don't have the opportunity to get Penny Sewell, the next option has to be a wide receiver. They need to focus on making sure Burrow is protected. And even if you can't find a guy who's going to protect him, if you can give him an option to throw the ball to, somebody who's going to be open, that is where it really matters. Because he can get the ball out, he can make sure to, even if the pocket isn't clean, if he's able to get the ball out quick enough, he's not going to take as many big hits. And we talked about Carson Wentz and how bad of a season he had last season. That season was so bad because of how terrible the situation he was in. For Joe Burrow... The situation he is in is going to determine the success that he has. If he grows in a bad situation, if he grows with no offensive line, no weapons, then we're going to see the same Joe Burrow that we saw at Ohio State. We didn't. So I think there's a big issue for the Bengals on that offensive line and an issue that Penny Sewell can, can really solve. Now, protecting Burrow needs to be very important, so... Getting him young weapons also has to be important. A.J. Green, he needs to walk. It's time for him to go. He's not going to be contributing the same that he was when he was uh, a a much younger player. 
He's just not going to bring that same contribution, especially with a young receiver or a young quarterback like Joe Burrow. And Tyler Boyd is really getting up there in age. He's he's not super old at this point, but he shouldn't be the number two receiver forever. Moving on from Tyler Boyd has to be something that they do. They need a reset. And Tyler Boyd is part of the last regime that never had the success. So moving on from him, I think, has to be a key as well. Now I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, the NBA All-Star Reserves have been announced. Was anybody snubbed? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you guys tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports. Now, we've already talked a ton about college basketball in the NFL. Now, I want to talk about the NBA as the NBA All-Star Reserves have finally been announced. Now, I'm going to go through this list, and it's going to... It, they, they, they were right on some of the things, and they were wrong on some of the things. I mean, this is always the same type of deal. There's always going to be a snub. There's always going to be somebody who should have made it who didn't make it. So the starters were already announced uh, about a week ago, and the starters are as follows. They have LeBron James, Luka Doncic, uh, Anthony Davis, Stephen Curry, and Nikola Jokic, or and Kawhi Leonard, excuse me. And the 2021 East All-Star starters are Kyrie Irving, Bradley Beal, Giannis, Kevin Durant, and Joel Embiid. Now, the starters are fine. I think all of those starters pretty much deserve to be there. I think there could have been a couple of changes. Maybe Luka. Uh, I, I'm not sure if he should have been a starter. Uh, but I, I do think that they should have um, had him as a, uh, as a player. Now, the reserves are really where the question marks are. I think Damian Lillard could have been a starter even though he wasn't. Now, the reserves are the questions. In the West, the reserves are as follows. Chris Paul... Paul George, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Zion Williamson, and Anthony Davis. Doesn't sound too bad. We're going to take a little bit deeper of a look in just a second. On the east side of things, James Harden, Julius Randle, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Zach Levine, Ben Simmons, and Nikola Vucevic all made the cut. Now, there is one name missing that I think stands out above all the rest, it is a local Arizona name, and that is Devin Booker. Now, I need somebody to explain to me what more Devin Booker needs to do to make an NBA All-Star game. I mean, the Phoenix Suns are 20-10. and 10. They are a winning team, one of the top five teams in the Western Conference, which is a big deal at this point. Devin Booker himself is averaging 25 points per game, 3.5 rebounds, and 4.5 assists. He's playing extremely well. He's shooting the ball pretty well as well. 50% from the field, so for a shooting guard, that is actually incredible. And 38% from three, which is a very good shooting split. So Devin Booker has clearly done everything that he can and could do to make an all-star game. Yet, his teammate Chris Paul, who is the second or third option on this offense at any given moment, who averaged 16.6 points, eight less points per game than Devin Booker. One more rebound and four more assists more than Devin Booker. He made it, but Devin Booker didn't. So the second option on the Suns made it, but the first option didn't. So this is where I'm really confused. 
Devin Booker is gotta be the most disrespected player in the NBA. And that wasn't even my quote. That's not even me saying that. That is LeBron James, one of the best basketball players ever, who is saying that. Now, if LeBron James is speaking out against Devin Booker not making the All-Star game, I think it's a big deal. Now, there is going to be a reserve who does come in, and it'll probably be Devin Booker, but it's not the same thing. If Anthony Davis can't play, they're going to have to replace him, and Devin Booker very well could be that replacement player. And that would be all fine and dandy, but for Devin Booker, he deserved to be voted into the first run. I mean, why would he want to be a second-tier player if who they who is a backup plan? I mean, is Devin Booker playing like a backup plan right now? I mean, I think any team in the NBA would be happy to have him and happy to have his contributions, but the NBA All-Star Game still hasn't rewarded him. And I know I talk really negatively about the All-Star Game all the time. I think it is a complete waste of time. But being an All-Star matters in the NBA. I mean, it's got a lot of contract obligations. Players are making big-time bonuses for making the All-Star Game. That's tied into contracts all the time. And for NBA players, it is something that people look at when they consider if you're a Hall of Famer or not. Well, this guy's got 12 All-Star Games. And this guy's got four All-Star games. Who's going to make the uh, the Hall of Fame? The guy with 12 or the guy with four? So it matters if you actually end up getting that All-Star game on your resume. Now, it doesn't matter once the game happens. The game is pointless. The game doesn't mean anything. And, and I think that needs to change. Now, the MLB had a really good system in place before in which... In a seven-game series, the winner of the All-Star game, whether it be the AL or the NL, would get home field advantage for the playoffs. Now, that doesn't give the home team a complete advantage in the postseason. It doesn't really give anybody an advantage. One team is going to have the home field advantage one way or another. So if they give it to the team that is in the conference that won the All-Star game, it means that the players who are potentially competing to go to the World Series or go to that point in time, they're competing for something in the All-Star game. And it's not just a pointless game. They're competing for that home field advantage, which means a little bit. Now, obviously, the MLB got rid of that rule and completely made their own All-Star game pointless. But the NBA needs to think about how this game matters. Now, last year, it was a great All-Star game because they commemorated Kobe Bryant. But you can't rely on something like that happening to make the All-Star game better. I mean, the All-Star game is a complete waste of time as is because there's no reason for any of the players to play at full speed. There's no reason for anybody to go out and risk injury just to play in an All-Star game that means nothing down the line. Now, if there was some sort of something at stake, if there was a cash prize or something, maybe, maybe that's a little bit better. Let's think about this. If the All-Star game doesn't mean anything, it has no real obligations, why are we having it? Why is the All-Star game happening every single year in every single sport? I mean, the NFL has the Pro Bowl, which pointless. The MLB with the All-Star game the same way as the NBA, pointless. I mean, all of these games, these extra additive games, which are supposed to showcase the best players in the world... They don't showcase anybody because nobody goes up to those all-star games and plays at full speed. Nobody wants to risk an injury when, I mean, why would you want to risk an injury? Contracts are on the line. 
playoffs are on the line. I mean, in the NBA, this is halfway through the season. So how do we even tell who the All-Stars are versus who aren't? If Devin Booker finishes the season averaging 30 points a game and he doesn't make the All-Star game, does that mean he wasn't as good of a player as he was? I mean, that's the type of weight that we've given the All-Star game and the All-Star game selections. We've allowed the All-Star game selections to dictate who makes the Hall of Fame, to dictate who really had a meaningful career. And that's a problem because the game itself means nothing. The game itself is supposed to mean something. It's supposed to be something special. All the fans can watch LeBron James facing off against Giannis in one of the only times that we'll actually see it. We can see LeBron James facing off against Steph Curry. Steph Curry, he's faced off against Klay Thompson. I mean, we want to see these matchups. We want to see guys who are going to be Hall of Famers playing the game. But if they're not playing the game, if they're just trudging around, throwing up lobs every time, yeah, maybe the dunks are entertaining. Maybe they're fun to watch. But it's not an actual game of basketball. It's not the same thing. And I think the NBA knows this. Now, if they wanted to make it mean something, if they wanted to give these players an actual incentive to play the game, let's do it. But this year especially, players are going to be really unwilling to play at a full-speed rate. All A bunch of players have already said that they don't want to, to be there if they don't have to be. I mean, if you're an all-star, you're going to want to be on the all-star team. You want to make sure that stays on your legacy. But you're also putting yourself at risk. You're also going into a building playing against basketball players from 10, 20 other teams. So is the All-Star game pointless? Yeah. What can they do about it? I mean, that's the big question. The game means nothing. And I like what the MLB had before. I liked that it was small stakes. Stakes that didn't mean exactly that it it was the, the biggest and most important game, but there were stakes. And there was a reason to play. Not so much anymore. I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I want to talk about Brad Stevens and the Celtics' struggles. Stay tuned. Is the blame for the Celtics' poor start to the season on Brad Stevens? Welcome back to Up for Debate. I'm your host, Cade Reed. Thank you all very much for tuning in today. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. I will be here live bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports only on KJAC Radio. Now, if you're looking at the NBA standings right now, you'll see that the Boston Celtics have found themselves at the number six seed in the Eastern Conference. And if you're thinking about how this team has performed, it doesn't make sense that they're moving backwards. I mean, last year they were in the conference championship game. Obviously, they lost that game, but they were in it. Now, the problem for the Celtics is clear. And a lot of people are putting a lot of blame on Brad Stevens for the lack of success the Celtics have had, which is understandable. They were a top three seed uh, year after year after year, and then this year they're somehow below 500. They're somehow 15 and 16, and only in the playoffs right now because they're in a poor Eastern Conference. You look down at the Western Conference, this is not even a playoff team if, if they're in the Western Conference. I mean, the Celtics do not make the playoffs in the Western Conference as the season ended today. That's a big-time issue, and that issue is going to need to be addressed sometime soon. Now, a lot of people are blaming the Boston Celtics coach. They're blaming Brad Stevens because 
He's not positioning them in a good enough spot to win these games. They've got two All-Stars. They got Jason Tatum. They got Jalen Brown. They even have Kemba Walker, who's playing well in his own right. So why aren't they winning? Well, a big problem with this team is they're having some poor shooting. Uh, Kemba Walker is not shooting well. Marcus Smart hasn't shot well this season. He's also been a little bit banged up. And beyond that, they don't really have any other shooters. Now, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are both not involved in this. They're both great shooters, but we need to talk about what is beyond Jalen Brown, what is beyond Jason Tatum. Those two guys are great, but they don't have a center. Daniel Tice is the starting center for this team, or Tristan Thompson. They're the starting center power forward duo, and that doesn't really make any sense. So for Daniel Tice, he's the starting center, but he is not a big center. He is a 6'8", 245-pound center. We were talking about EJ Lydell. Uh, Sean Clark said he was undersized to be the center. Well, Lydell is bigger than Daniel Tice, and Daniel Tice is in the NBA. So you can see there's a big-time issue with the Boston Celtics as they don't have any size. Now, Tristan Thompson has played well. He's been a good rebounder. But again, defensively, you're not going to get a great outcome from Tristan Thompson. Daniel Tice isn't going to be able to stop Joel Embiid. So the problem is there for the Boston Celtics, and the need to address it has got to be, I mean, it's got to be there. Brad Stevens has not been a great coach. He hasn't had the best season. But the Celtics have the talent to turn it around. And, and I understand that it is on Brad Stevens to position this team to win. But with Danny Ainge, I mean, they're not going to get there. Now, yes, Danny Ainge has done a good job, but at this point in time, this team is not ready to compete for a championship. Now, you have to understand, getting guys like Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown is all fine and good, but you need three stars, four stars. You need the best player on the planet. You need so many things if you want to be competitive and win an NBA championship, and the Boston Celtics just don't have that. Now, yes, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have both developed into just about superstars. But beyond that, the depth of this team is really rough. Carson Edwards, Grant Williams, Jeff Teague, these are the names that are getting a lot of reserve minutes. Peyton Pritchard, who's played okay, has gotten a ton of minutes, but the reserves for the Boston Celtics is going to be a continual problem. And this is a problem that isn't going to be solved unless they make a move, unless they sign a free agent, get somebody who can really perimeter the paint and I feel like I talk about this for so many different teams if you have a dominant big man you're in a better situation if you have a big man who can patrol the paint pay play interior defense and and do it at a high level then you don't have to worry quite as much the Utah Jazz they have been so successful this season because Rudy Gobert has been great on the inside they don't have to worry about interior defense because he has it under control the 76ers, the exact same situation. Joel Embiid is a dominant big man. Now, the Denver Nuggets, they have Nikola Jokic, but they don't have a defender. They don't have somebody who can really step up and defend the interior and step up and defend the paint. That's an issue that a ton of teams need to address. And the Boston Celtics are one of those teams. And the biggest name on the market right now, and so many teams are going to be looking after to try to get this player, is DeMarcus Cousins. He is going to be a hot commodity in the next couple of weeks. Teams are going to want to sign him and bring him in. Now, yes, he did just have a buyout, so 
The contract that he'll be looking for probably won't be very much. He'll probably sign with a veteran men, maybe a little more than a veteran men, but he's going to sign with a team that he thinks is going to have the best chance to win an NBA championship. I mean, that's the position that he's in. He has that ability. He has the talent to patrol the paint and be the interior defender that every single team needs. And for the Boston Celtics, it would be a great match. Now, Daniel Tice is a very gritty player. He plays good defense, but he can't really guard the interior quite as well as a seven-footer. I mean, it's just when you're three inches or five inches shorter than the guy you're guarding, you're going to have some trouble. Even though Daniel Tice is a strong defender, even though Daniel Tice is talented, he's not good enough to be a starting center for a playoff team that, that has aspirations of winning the championship. But DeMarcus Cousins is a game-changing center. He's a center that you insert and you already have a guy who's going to get a double-double. You give him 25 minutes a game, he's going to get you a double-double. 12 points, 10 rebounds a game. And that is exactly what the Celtics are missing out on. Daniel Tice isn't getting nearly that many rebounds. Tristan Thompson isn't getting nearly that many points. So DeMarcus Cousins brings the best of both worlds to this team. And I think the Boston Celtics have to make a push at him. Now, the Raptors are going to make a push. The Nets are going to make a push. The Lakers, they're going to make a push. There's going to be a ton of teams eyeing DeMarcus Cousins. He's going to be a hot commodity. But the Celtics have to show that really they're just a big man short. They've got the shooting as far as Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown. They do need to get more consistent with Kemba Walker and Marcus Smart. They need to get more consistent with Peyton Pritchard and Jeff Teague. But they have the guys that it takes. And a big man will change a lot of things for the Boston Celtics. Now I'm going to take a quick break. When I come back, I'm going to talk about the problem with MLB service time in the MLB. Stay tuned. The Seattle Mariners CEO was just sort of fired. I mean, he sent in his resignation, but he is done in the MLB because of some of the words he said about service times and how he negatively talked down to his players. I'm Cade Reed, and it's up for debate. Thank you all for tuning in. Uh, we've got a ton to talk about. I want to jump right into this topic because we've already talked about it a little bit. Uh, when the breaking news happened that Kevin Mather was fired or that he resigned from his role, uh, I, I talked a little bit about it, uh, but I didn't get a chance at that time to actually listen to the recording. And let me tell you, the recording itself that Kevin Mather was was on, and it was 45 minutes of him talking to a uh, a Rotary Club, which is really, really kind of interesting that the Rotary Club has the best access to the MLB players or the MLB general managers. I guess I got to join a Rotary Club if I want to get that type of access. Uh, but the Rotary Club did a great job because they put out this information. They did this interview, and, I mean, it seemed like it was a positive interview for Mather. I mean, he seemed happy when he was doing it. He seemed like he was not worried in, in the slightest about the repercussions of what he was saying. But there's something that he was talking about that really strung a chord with me because I have been disliking the MLB more and more and more every single season. I think the MLB was probably my favorite sports league uh, when I was in middle school. I loved the MLB. I loved baseball. I think the game is great. But the way the MLB is changing the game is really a problem. And with people like Kevin Mather having power and the role that he had, it was a, a, a complete problem 
And that is just a understatement in the slightest. So basically, Kevin Mather talked about, if you haven't heard about it already, he talked about service time in the MLB and how basically he has players on a on a clock. And no matter how well these players play at the, the minor league level, no matter how MLB ready they are, he's not going to bring them up until it's suitable for him. And, and what I mean until it's suitable for him, because how can... How can it be suitable for him if he's wasting talent in the minors? But the way the MLB is set up, and it is flawed majorly, the cap situation is a disaster, but the way the MLB is set up is when a team brings in a player and they are a minor league player who has never made an appearance at the MLB level, those players have a service clock. So basically, the teams have three years of control for this player, uh, and it's just on a cheap, cheap rookie contract. And let's talk about that rookie contract. The cheap rookie contract that I'm referring to gives players like Juan Soto, one of the best players in the MLB, one of the most talented players in the MLB, about $630,000 last season. Not even a million dollars, $630,000 for one of the best players in the MLB last season. And, and, and that's all fine and good. Sure, they're on a rookie contract. It happens in every every sport league. There's going to be a cheap rookie contract. But then let's look at what happens after those first three years. After that rookie contract is up, after they, they go through those first three years, they go to an arbiter. And the arbiter basically decides how much these players are worth. And there's got to be no sort of indication on how they make these decisions. Juan Soto, same player I was just referring to, he went to his first uh, his first arbitration this season. And he got paid just around $8 million. Now, $8 million doesn't sound too bad, but if you're one of the best players in the country, you're one of the best players in the world. I mean, last year he hit 351. He had 13 home runs, led the team. He was absolutely incredible last season. For players like him, it doesn't even he doesn't get a chance to test the open market. Now, Juan Soto, once he does get through arbitration, he is going to get a multi-year deal worth 25 30 million dollars per year that's what he could be getting today and because of the way this system is set up the mlb basically gives this arbiter an extremely low number and if the player disagrees they can argue they go to the arbiter and they determine how much money the player is actually getting paid but whatever they're actually getting paid is always less than what they deserve i mean the arbitration is always way less money than any of these players deserve. I mean, for example, Jack Flattery, who is the ace of the St. Louis Cardinals, their best pitcher. He didn't have a great season last season, but he still is their best pitcher. Uh, he got a lump sum of $4 million to play this season. $4 million. We're talking about the the guy on this team who was 4-3 and three last season. Obviously, it was a shortened season. He might not have had his best season, but... If we go to 2019, uh, we can see that Jack Flattery, 2.75 ERA, 231 strikeouts in 196 innings. That's all, oh, it's more than a strikeout in an inning. Jack Flattery is not deserving of $4 million. Jack Flattery is deserving of $15 to $20 million this year. And because of the system that's in place, because of the setup, the arbitration setup, players are constantly getting robbed by owners and management of the MLB. I mean, the MLB has a complete stranglehold over the players, and there is a ton and a ton of issues. Kevin Mather just 
laid out in front of us. Now, those issues have always been present. Those issues have always been there. But the fact that a person with so much power and so much control, the CEO of the Seattle Mariners, came out and said basically that he was manipulating these time or the service times for these players so players who were ready, they didn't get to go up in the MLB. They didn't get to make the paycheck that they deserve. They're on the owners and the general manager's watch. So when the general manager wants to bring them up, they can bring them up and then they have them for the next six years. And there's no choice for that player. They don't get a choice to to go elsewhere. They can sit out the season, but that's not going to do anything for them. The MLB is broken. I mean, there are tons and tons of issues with the MLB, but what Kevin Mather did, it, it that is the first step. And, and that's the first step because now everybody knows. Everybody knows how messed up the MLB is. Everybody knows how terribly set up the cap situation is. I mean, six years of service time is just an absolute appalling uh, amount of time for a player who should be able to get a contract at least within their first three years in the in the majors. Now, six years, a player who gets to the majors, their first appearance is at age 24. They don't have an opportunity to get a contract until they are 30 years old. When they turn 30 years old, they can actually sign their first long-term contract. This is an issue. The MLB has tons of issues, but this is one of the biggest and one that needs to be solved ASAP. Now, that's going to do it for Up for Debate today. Thank you all very much for tuning in. Make sure you tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. where I will be here bringing you the most debatable content in all of sports, only on KJAC Radio. Now, that's going to do it for today. Make sure to follow me on social media at the underscore Cade Reed, and I will see you guys on Friday.